This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Do you have weak, damaged hair? New Garnier Fructis Hair Filler Systems fill hair with strength seven layers deep. In just one use, you can reverse up to one year of damage to hair smoothness. The sulfate-free hair filler plus vitamin C-G system gives you up to 79% stronger hair and up to four times less breakage. New Garnier Fructis hair filler is available now on Amazon and at Walmart, Target, Ulta, Drug, and select grocery stores. I very distinctly remember kind of key points, like when I found out about his diagnosis and not long after he died, that I turned to video games as a sort of solace. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, the online assistant of BBC Science Focus magazine. This week, we dive into the world of video games. Over the past couple of decades, video games have often got a bad rap, blamed for everything from aggression and violence to addiction and mental health problems. But what does the research actually say? Dr Pete Etchells is a psychologist at Bath Spa University who researches the behavioural effects of video games. In his first book, Lost in a Good Game, he gets to the bottom of our relationship with games and reveals a more positive side to our game-playing habits. Here is our staff writer, James Lloyd, speaking to Pete. Um, so, Pete, I was wondering, why did you decide to write a book about video games? What set you out on that journey? It's, it's a really good question. I So, I didn't start off doing video game research um, back in, back in the, the early days of the... The, the mid 2000 2008 2010 I was uh, I was doing work on vision research vision psychology so trying to understand how and why we make eye movements to things that are moving around us um, I've been a, a gamer most of my life um, and the thing that kind of sparked my interest in 
doing research in this sort of area was just kind of really reading news stories around um, quite worrying stories around how video games affect us. There's, there's always one that really sticks in my mind. I think it's from around about 2011, where somebody was quoted in the news as saying that video games or computer games cause early onset dementia in kids. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that I got annoyed at those sorts of stories. It's just that I didn't quite understand why people were worrying about those aspects of games that there's no evidence for and there was no need to worry about, really. Mm. So it kind of came from a, a viewpoint that was really based in somebody who'd not really approached video games in their life before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what piqued my interest, really, is that a lot of people who are scared about video games and the effects that they have probably don't have much experience of them. And that's understandable, really. If you see, if you know, if you've never played a video game before and you mm. watch somebody playing a video game, it yeah. looks like a really jarring experience, right? You've got, somebody's staring at a screen. It looks quite solitary, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It looks as though they're completely absorbed in it. It looks like they're doing it on their own, absolutely. Um, and if you don't understand what's going on, it's it's no small wonder that people worry about that sort of experience. Mm. Um, so it's kind of stories in, in the news like that that made me think, well, you know, what, what do we know about how video games affect us? And that kind of spurred me into doing research mm -hmm. that's primarily really stuck to the, whether, the, the old question of whether playing violent video games causes uh -huh. aggression. But I do other work as well in terms of um, a little bit of work on addiction. Uh, and also work on screen time more okay. generally. So do screens generally yeah. have any sort of positive or negative effect on Okay, this? so we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, I was going to ask, you said that you yourself are a gamer. When did your love for video games begin? <laughs> um, I don't think I can pinpoint a specific time. Um, I've, already, I've always had video games around, really. I think um, the, the, the first quote-unquote gaming console it wasn't really a console that I remember was I had an Atari ST when I was really young when I was about six or seven um, it was more of a computer obviously but I remember playing um, all sorts of games on that I do remember having access to things like a Spectrum ZX when I was a little bit younger than that and an Atari 520 um, but it's just something that I've always been around really so it, it's just it's never felt as though there was a momentous moment where I wasn't playing video games before, and then I did start playing them. Um, it's just been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, really. So you mentioned there the link between video games and violence. Um, that seems to be what causes the most controversy in the media, mm. the games with a lot of graphic violence and gore. Um, and there have been lots of headlines over the years linking video games to aggression and violence. What does the research actually say about this? Do you know what? It's a really hard question to answer from a scientific point of view. I think one of the things that frustrates me the most about the perception around video games research is that, you know, I talk about what I do in the, in the news quite a lot and you get quite sarcastic comments from people saying, oh, you know, have you found a cure for cancer yet? And I get where they're coming from. It's the implication that, you know, games are sort of perceived to be a childish pastime and why would you as a scientist sort of waste your time mm -hmm. on, on them? But so two things to say about that. One is that actually I think it's really important to understand what the effects of games are because we are so worried about whether they're bad for us or good for us because so many people play them. And the second thing is that actually as a science, it's really hard to do this sort of stuff, right? So it's really hard to get somebody into a lab in a really controlled condition set of conditions and give them give some people a, vi a violent game to play say yeah. and other people a non-violent game mm -hmm. and for that to be really nicely controlled so mm -hmm. that you can really just isolate the effects 
of violence mm -hmm. and do that in such a way that you can be convinced that what, whatever effects on behaviour you do see are A, because of that violent content and B, long term. And it's very difficult to do that. So what kinds of studies are normally done then to test this link? There's, there's generally sort of two types of studies. So there are experimental studies that try and test a causal link. So you selectively manipulate things like the violent content of games mm -hmm. and see whether that has an effect on some sort of measure of aggression. And there are real problems with how we measure that. Yeah, so I was going to ask, how do you actually go about measuring aggression in a lab? You know, obviously with someone in a lab, you're not going to get them to do aggressive acts or, or violent acts at all. Yeah, well, that's the thing. When you read a lot of these papers, they often start by saying something along the lines of um, there was a they might talk about a particular shooting in the US and there was a d discussion and controversy around that shooting that suggested that the, the person who perpetrated that act of violence played a lot of violent video games and therefore it's an important societal question to answer because ideally we want to, if, if it's the case that playing a violent video games, games causes people to do that, then we want to be able to try and stop that from happening. That's the sort of aggression that a lot of people are talking about quite a lot, but you can't measure that in a lab. You can't get people to beat each other up mm. Um, it's just never going to get through ethical approval. Yeah. So what we end up having to do is use what we call proxy measures of aggression. So things that look like aggressive behaviour but aren't people actually directly hurting each other. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problems start to come in. So one of the most common measures that people use in research is called the competitive reaction time task. Mm -hmm. So the basic setup here is that you get people to play a violent or a non-violent game, whatever that means, um, and then you say afterwards, okay, we're going to do a different game now. We're going to take you into a room on your own mm -hmm. and you're going to play a reaction time game. So yep. basically something's going to pop up on the screen like a red blob or something. Mm -hmm. As soon as it does that, you've got to press the space bar as quickly mm -hmm. as possible. You're going to be playing it against somebody else in a different room somewhere else in the university. That person actually in reality doesn't exist. It's all controlled by the computer. Um, but it, there's a competitive element to it. So you're told that if you win, you get to punish your opponent by blasting them with a loud noise. Mm -hmm. If you lose, they get to punish you with the same thing. And you get to decide how loud the noise is and how long the blast lasts for. So that's the measure of aggression. So you're being more aggressive if you punish your opponent, as it were, with a louder noise for longer. Um, the problem with that as a measure is that it, it is some form of aggression. It's very different to mm. beating people up or shooting people or being physically aggressive in the real world. But also there's a lot of flexibility in, in how we analyse and test that measure. So because you're testing two things, you're changing the loudness and, and the duration, mm. what do you pick as your measure? Well, in some studies they pick the, the average loudness across all of the trials of the experiment. Some studies, they, they take the average duration. Some studies, they take the average loudness times the average duration. Right. In some studies, you might just take the data from the very first trial in the experiment, where, because that's the only time where the participant will have won, having never lost. And you could argue that that's unprovoked uh -huh. aggression. Yeah. Some studies take only the data from trials where the participant won, but they lost the previous trial. Mm -hmm. So you might call that retaliatory aggression. Yeah. Okay. Now, the trouble with all of this is this, this is all well and good, but if you look at the data across all of the different ways in which you can analyse analyze it, a study that came out a few years ago did precisely this. They took a single data set and they analysed it in about 30 or 40 different ways. 
that you find in the research literature. And the problem there that they found was that depending on the way that you analyse the same data, you can show anything from showing that violent video games really definitely do cause aggression mm -hmm. to that they definitely don't right. and everything in between. Uh -huh. So it's nothing to do with what's in the data itself. It's entirely yeah. down to the decisions that you make as a researcher about which analysis method to use. And then the follow-on problem with that, to, to get a little bit more nerdy, is that that, in theory, is fine as long as there's a clear and logical, consistent rationale for why mm. you pick a certain analysis method. And that doesn't exist in the literature. Mm. So it's not clear why some researchers pick some methods and others pick right. other methods. So do we not really have any idea yet then on whether there is a link between aggression and video games? So the best, the best research that we have, like with a lot of things in this sort of realm, suggests that there are effects. So there are small effects of playing video games. I don't think anybody's suggesting that if you play a video game, it won't have any effect on you at all, because mm. I think that would be unique. Literally everything that we do has an effect mm. on us in some small way. The question is whether, whether it's meaningful or not. Mm. So the best research I think that we have so far suggests that there are some small effects there, some small correlations, but they're not things to worry about. So if you're worried about real-world physical aggression, if you're worried about mental health issues mm -hmm. like depression or anxiety, video games might play a very small factor in that, but they're not something that you really want to concentrate on too much. Right. There'll be other things that are much more important in terms of contributing factors. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing I was going to ask you about in relation to the possible downsides of video games is you mentioned um, something else which you look at in your research, which is the addictive side of them. Um, so last year, the World Health Organization classified gaming disorders as a mental health condition. Um, but how addictive are video games really? I mean, as a gamer myself, I, I get that urge, you know, you just want to complete the next level. Um, you just want to spend a bit more time getting to the next bit of the game. But obviously, there's a difference between an urge and an actual proper addiction, I guess, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, there's a lot of complex issues going on here and I think actually what you just said there is a really important one to tease apart that you know we worry about kind of compulsive behavior or that kind of urge to play the next level but that's not addiction when we're talking about addiction in a clinical sense it's a really serious very debilitating disorder um, when it comes to video games this the picture is not a clear one at all mm -hmm. certainly in my mind I know that there are other scientists out there that would disagree with me. Mm. Um, I think the problem is that if you talk about video games generally, that is such a broad church yeah. that it sort of becomes a meaningless question to ask. Asking whether video games generally are addictive is probably not the right way to approach the subject because I think by and large the answer is no, generally. Um, that's not to say that there aren't things to worry about about video games. So I think increasingly we are seeing um, gambling-like mechanisms being introduced into games as a form of monetization. So things like loot boxes, right. uh, particularly in mobile games, in freemium games, in-app purchases and microtransactions. Mm -hmm. The way a lot of those work mimic the way that things like fixed odds betting machines work. And I think that's a real worry. Yeah. But then I think the argument is not so much that video games are addictive, it's these gambling mechanisms, which we already know are addictive, which are being implemented in video games that's causing the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think most scientists are in agreement that there, there, is a, there is a small number of people, of individuals out there for whom if they play video games, 
it 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 can become a problematic thing. It can become something that looks like an addiction mm -hmm. and can cause harm in their lives. Where scientists disagree, I think, is in what the prevalence rates are, so what proportion of the gaming population might be susceptible to that, and actually even more fundamentally than that, what video game addiction looks like. So historically, um, if you look at how video game addiction research has played out over the past 30 years, it, start, it used things like gambling addiction questionnaires or mm -hmm. substance use addiction questionnaires as a starting point. So basically right. what you do is take a questionnaire um, that says, you know, it has various sorts of questions about gambling, and you just replace the word gambling with gaming in there, yeah. right? That's a really good starting point. It's completely reasonable to suggest that, mm -hmm. you know, things, two kind of behavioral things might share similarities. But what sort of happened since then is rather than there be a real drive to understand what the unique aspects of video game addiction might look like, mm -hmm. we've just kept reusing and reusing these questionnaires that are based on other sorts of disorders instead without really thinking about what that might mean. You know, if you if you have a scale, uh, so really kind of facetious example, but if I have a, a one item questionnaire that says, you know, do you think you're addicted to video games between zero and 10? People will put numbers on that, right? And then you can create an addiction scale, right? And say, well, if you, if you score more than six on this one item scale, you are addicted to video games. Yeah. And then a certain portion of the population will show addiction to video games. But that's not actually measuring addiction to video games, right? And it's the same sort of issue generally with literature. Like there are there are criteria that the WHO uses, for instance, and the the DSM, which is sort of the American version of the International Classification of Diseases that the WHO yeah. lists all the all of their disease criteria. In. So the American version came out a few years ago and listed internet gaming disorder as a um, a, a potential. Uh, disorder that warrants further research mm -hmm. and and in both of those situations one of the criteria was that you become preoccupied with video games and stop doing other hobbies instead yeah. right? that kind of makes sense when you're talking about heroin right so if you start taking heroin which has no negative effects and you're doing that and you're not doing anything else that you used to do you can see how that would be a bad thing but video games are, are a hobby, right? They're designed to be a hobby. They're designed to be immersive and interactive, and there's lots of different ways you can play them. So if somebody starts playing one thing and stops doing other things mm. that are hobbies, is, is that a problem? If I started playing golf and I did that and stopped doing everything else, nobody would say I'd be addicted to, to golf. So we have this kind of fixation on video games being unique in that sense so you know and, and obviously a lot of people will say that they play video games and they don't really do anything else so that that sort of criterion has the potential to inflate um the the, the potential prevalence rate and i think that's the problem that a lot of scientists have with how the who is um proceeded with trying to include gaming disorder is well, video games can get to the extent can't it where where it does have an impact on your relationship with people yeah. an impact on your mental health i suppose if, if you do it too much absolutely there is there is a potential for that but the problem is that if you include these other criteria which then might capture a lot of a lot of people who don't have a problem with video games but are suddenly classified as having a problem with video games, two things happen. One is that you're over-diagnosing, so you're stigmatising people because you're saying that they've got a disorder when they don't. Mm -hmm. That can cause all sorts of extra pressures on treatment services, of which there are none that are evidence-based at the minute, really. Um, but it also means that the people that do have 
an actual problem in video games kind of get lost in the noise because you're not really specifically targeting those people. You're just targeting a much broader population. So we've talked quite a lot about the supposed downsides of video games. I was going to ask you, what are some of the ways in which video games can benefit us? Um, That's quite a big part of your book. You talk about some of the kind of psychological benefits that video games can have. So it's an interesting question and there's, there's sort of two sides to this really. So one is I think there's such a backlash against video games and we see so much about the negative effects of them in in the news that we end up sometimes seeing stuff that goes too far the other way so we often see like stories about well here are the here are the um the unequivocal positive effects of benefits of of video games you know they 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 make they improve our reaction times or they improve our hand-eye coordination Mm -hmm. or they they improve our memory and things like that there are studies out there that show that there are some benefits in terms of cognitive performance but Mm -hmm just in the way that I'm not convinced about the aggression effects, Mm. I'm not massively convinced about the positive effects literature as well. I think, again, because it's such a hard thing to to study uh, and to do properly, there's not that much in the way of good research. So I think we've got to be really careful about cherry picking, right? Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. it's it's important not to say, look, all the bad... I'm going to be really critical about all the negative stuff and I'm going to be really uncritical about all the positive (laughs) stuff uh, because I don't think that that helps... Um, helps anyone really. Um, I think in the book, the sorts of benefits that I talk about, a lot of them are kind of anecdotal in a way. Um, And I think they're trying to push back against some of those misconceptions about what video games are. So for me, I always find it quite strange when people say that they think that playing video games is a really isolating experience Mm. because for me, video games have been one of the most connecting experiences that I can think of. You know, I play a lot of World of Warcraft. Yeah. I'm in a guild there, which is a group of uh, a group of players. Um, I, I've known these people for seven or eight years now. And a lot of the time I, I play the game. You know, sometimes I might not even play the game, right? I'm just sat there chatting to them. Yeah. It's basically a glorified social network, and it's a way of keeping in touch and forming communities around people that have similar interests to you. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful an important thing, finding ways to talk to people when actually you might otherwise be isolated yeah. is a really important thing that mm-hmm. the games can offer us. They increasingly, I think, uh, are being used um, in scientific research. So scientists are starting to realise the, the kind of uh, the immersive power that video games can have and they, they're leveraging that yeah. um, to answer some really important and complex questions around... Um, the human condition, basically. So um, over the past few years, for example, there's been a a mobile game that's free to download, um, free to play, called Sea Hero Quest. Mm -hmm. Really nicely designed uh, game where you uh, navigate a little boat around a map. So the idea is you're kind of given a top-down view of the map to begin with, you've got to try and memorise that, and then you've got to navigate to some waypoints afterwards. Actually, what's what's powering that is uh, scientific research into trying to understand Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. in a way. So um, one of the things that goes wrong in Alzheimer's disease is spatial navigation, how you kind of figure out where to go in your environment. And uh, annoyingly, we, we don't really have much information or much understanding of how that starts to go wrong. Mm. Because it's so difficult to diagnose Alzheimer's disease early on, you've got to kind of factor out other sorts of things that it might be. Um, it also means that we don't have much of a handle on how that spatial navigation ability declines mm-hmm. um, early on. We know what it's like in people 
who've got full-blown Alzheimer's disease, we know what it's like in healthy populations. Yeah. It's that transition that we don't know much about. So See Hero Quest, the, the hope behind that was that we gather loads and loads of data from people right across the age demographic spectrum. Um, and we can use that as a sort of database to try and understand what happens to spatial navigation abilities over time. Um, they've had millions and millions of players on this already. I think um, there were sort of estimates of millions of years worth of data um, out there that they need to crunch. And we're starting to see some emerging results from it now, some really interesting yeah. stuff. So spatial navigation abilities seem to decline, start to decline much earlier in life than we initially okay. thought. Um, there are interesting um cultural differences so mm -hmm. they've they've done country by country analysis on this and mm -hmm. found that um uh, there are there, depending on um how um, oppressive certain cultures are uh, towards women you see stronger differences between men and women in terms of their okay. spatial navigation abilities so one thing that i always worry about with this is that the sort of this idea of gamification where basically scientists sometimes make a a, um, a lab-based experiment and they make it kind of look like a game by adding a point scoring element to mm. something like that. Yeah. They tend to be really rubbish. Like <laughs> for people who play video games, you look at these things and like they're really poor production values and they look really tacky. And you think, well, it's not really a game. But there is, we're starting to see a realization that actually if you make really good games with high production values, mm -hmm. you can communicate the science yeah. and do science in a really interesting and novel way. So you touched on it earlier, Pete, the ways in which video games had benefited you in your own life. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about the role that they played as you were growing up, how they helped you with um, with the things that you were going through at the time. Yeah, it's. I think this. It's obviously it's going to be different for, for, for everybody who has their own kind of personal experiences with, with games. Um, I, for better or worse, I used games as a coping mechanism when I was younger. Um, when I was um, when I was fourteen, my my dad died. Um, he had uh, motor neurone disease, and I'd been um, living with him and looking after him for about two years before that. And I very distinctly remember kind of key points, like when I found out about his diagnosis, and not long after he died, that I turned to video games as a sort of solace. It's a very fine balance, I think, because I think there are some situations where some people have turned to video games and they've got completely lost in them, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. For me, it's been a very positive thing. For me, it's been a way to allow my brain to sort of process something that kind of defies understanding, really. So mm -hmm. to just take a bit of a pause and say, look, I need to figure this out, but to try and do something in mm -hmm. the background, as it were, to yeah. help with that at the time. So they've been immensely helpful for me um, in that sort of way. I think we started to see more recently more of an acknowledgement of the role, that sort of role that video games can play. Mm -hmm. And I think it's coupled with, with the fact that people are finding it easier to talk about mental health issues yeah. now. But we're starting to see games that are built either based on the own, the, the own experiences of the developers themselves or to help them cope with either mental health issues or mm -hmm. grief or loss. Um, so I think, and, and we're starting to see big developers get involved in that as well. So I think EA have got a new game coming out soon called Sea of Solitude yeah. that tackles some of these ideas around loneliness uh -huh. um, in depression. So it'd be interesting to see how those sorts of things um, play out. So do you think it's the escapism side of video games that give them these benefits then? 
Um, I suppose movies, books, all these things we do in our leisure time, they're all a form of escapism, really, aren't they? Yeah. Do you think video games offer more of an escape in a way? I think they can in the sense that, um, you know, you can get really involved in a movie and and really empathise with the main characters, but you're still a sort of passive onlooker. Whereas in video games, you're actively, you are the main character. And that's quite an empowering um, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think people play games for different reasons. And I think even an individual person will play different games at different times for, for, for different mm-hmm. reasons. I think I got, I got asked recently, um, you know, whether the social element of games is really important for me. And, and, and the answer to that is yes, you know, because I play mm-hmm. Warcraft. It's probably the game that I play the most. Mm-hmm. And there's a hugely social element to that. But, you know, there are also times where I just want to play a game on my own and not really talk to anybody and just zone out for a bit. Yeah. So I don't want all video games to have a social element because that would be horrible because yeah. I'd never be able to get away from yeah. everybody. But, you know, sometimes I just like playing Zelda on my own yeah. and just experiencing that that escape and going to another mm-hmm. world. It's kind of like going on holiday for a little bit. So would you say that escapism is a positive thing generally? I think we've got to be careful about it because uh-huh. I, f- m- for me personally, it's been a positive thing. I am, I'm completely sympathetic to the, the, the viewpoint that for some people that can go quite wrong. Mm. I think... Like anything in life, it's one of those situations where you've got to be moderate in the way that you do things. And I think you've got to be aware of what it is that you're doing. And with anything that we do, if you can kind of just have a little bit of a a background commentary going on and just checking, you know, is this is this getting too much? It's Mm -hmm. good to be able to do that and to know when when Mm -hmm. to stop. Mm -hmm. I don't think video games are unique in that sense, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that we should be blasé about them either. So it seems like the world of science and psychology is grappling still with quite a lot of issues around video games. We talked about the aggression, the violence issue. Uh, We talked about the addictive side. How do you think we can resolve these things? And where would you like to see the conversation around video games go next? That's a really good question. Um, I think one thing to, to, to begin with, really, is that I would like to see video games researchers chill out with each other a little bit more. Um, Certainly in the violent video game aggression research literature, there's quite a lot of viciousness. Ironically. Yeah, ironically, to the the point that there was a paper that came out a few years ago saying uh, that had the title of something along the lines of um, does doing violent media research make uh, researchers violent? (laughs) Uh, Somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But um, there's a a lot of ad hom attack, I think, sometimes. And it's something that I talk about in in the book in that, you know, there's there's been uh, published commentaries where people say, um, you know, some people, some researchers believe that violent video games don't cause aggression. Of course, also some people uh, deny that the Holocaust happened. It's completely outrageous things to say that don't help the science as mm-hmm. well. So I would like to see much more collaboration mm-hmm. between scientists on different sides. I don't think it will happen because I think we're too far beyond that. But hopefully with a new generation researchers mm-hmm. who are a little bit more open to that, we can move the conversation on. I'd like to see scientists use more open research methods, so make their data and their materials and their analysis scripts available mm-hmm. for other researchers to scrutinise. Because sometimes with the best intentions, we make mistakes. Scientists are only human, right? We all make mistakes. Um, I would also like to see more conversations between scientists and developers as well. So I think developers often hold quite a lot of data about how 
people are using their games. And I get that there are issues around industry confidentiality around that. But I think opening the doors and being much more collaborative and collegiate about that will help everybody. I think it's unhelpful sometimes. And I know that there are people out there that would say, well, that's a risk because if you start doing research with games developers, there's going to be a massive conflict of interest there. There are ways in which you can mitigate the influence, the sort of either financial or mm-hmm. business influence that might impact on your results. There are ways in which we can get around that. And I think we should do that. Being open is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, there's lots of things that I'd like to, to see happen in, in those sorts of realms, really. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'd like to see more um, sensible conversations happen in the media as well. Mm-hmm. I think we are starting to see a shift in that happily. Mm-hmm. I think where, you know, five, six, seven years ago, it got a bit boring, the fact that all of the conversations were playing Call of Duty causes Alzheimer's disease or causes people to become much more aggressive yeah. or, no, that's not true, video games are great because they do this. Mm-hmm. Like They were very much all or nothing uh-huh. black or white conversations. Yeah. We're starting to see more of a nuanced conversation happen now and a, a more mature conversation, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. That was Pete Etchells talking about video games. His book, Lost in a Good Game, is out now on Icon Books. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, we ask, what if the Big Bang wasn't the beginning? Speak to Sir David Attenborough about his new TV show and explore how robots are being used to reveal how ancient animals moved. As always, there is much more inside. And please don't forget to rate and review the episode wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. <laughs>